Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday, 12 noon, on the dot, to defend and to promote public education. And in order to do that, of course, we take a very firm line on private schools. They can exist if they want to. They've certainly got plenty of money, particularly a lot of the churches that run them, but uh, we don't believe that they should get one cent of public money in either direct or indirect grants. But uh, we'll talk about that a bit later. We also have a website at www.adogs.info and we're up to press release 973. Over the last few weeks, the Productivity Commission has produced a Productivity Commission report and part of this report deals with the National School Reform Agreement, which was uh, done, if you like, by the uh, federal and the state governments and the private schools back in 2018. And really, it's been a failure. It's a pretty shocking agreement, and the Albanese government are promising us anything better. However, the Productivity Commission only dealt with things like NAPLAN and PISA and teachers, whether or not they're doing a good job, and principals, whether they're doing a good job, but mainly testing like NAPLAN. They did not deal with funding because, surprise, surprise, dealing with funding was not part of their terms of reference. So we've got an interesting press release for you on this. And Sorrel's going to read it for us. Thanks, Jean. So this is Press Release 973, Productivity Report on National School Reform Agreement, The Art of Avoiding Real Issues. The Productivity Commission appears, on the surface, to be an independent body writing reports and making recommendation to the government of the day. But how independent is it? And what is left out of its reports? The personnel of the Commission is under question after appointments made by the Coalition Government. But the quality of its reports is another burning issue. Reports, particularly those dealing with education, are noted, not so much for what they deal with, but with what they are not permitted to deal with. For example, the current Productivity Commission's terms of reference for the report on the National School Reform Agreement of 2018 did not include funding, according to the Commission. This report was released on 20 January 2023. It examines how well national policy initiatives by the Australian state and territory governments have achieved the objectives and outcomes set out in the agreement and makes recommendations to inform the design of the next school reform agreement. The review recommends redesigning the agreement to focus more attention on lifting academic results for all students, supporting quality teaching and school leadership, and promoting students' well-being. What is this review about? Four years ago, on the back of a $319 billion funding deal, and amid concerns that Australia's performance in international testing had fallen, the Commonwealth states and territories struck an agreement on national reforms to lift education outcomes. The National School Reform Agreement, NSRA. The objective of the NSRA is for Australian schools to provide a high quality and equitable education for all students. This continues a long-standing commitment by education ministers 
to equity and excellence in schooling. Whilst equity and quality are not defined in the NSRA, these concepts are embodied in the NSRA's outcomes, targets, and national performance measures, sub-outcomes. To lift outcomes in student achievement, attainment, and engagement, the NSRA outlines three reform directions supported by eight national policy initiatives, NPIs, and a bilateral agreement between the Commonwealth and each state and territory government. Implementing the reform initiatives is a condition of Commonwealth funding. The Australian government has asked the commission to assess the effectiveness and appropriateness of the NPIs under the NSRA, recognizing that reforms take time to implement and mature, assess the appropriateness of the measurement framework for schooling in measuring progress towards achieving the outcomes of the NSRA, make recommendations to inform the design of the next school reform agreement and to improve the national measurement framework. Funding is outside the scope of the Commission's review. The Commission found, amongst other things, that one, since 2013, there have been marginal improvements in reading test results in year three and year five, but no improvements in year seven and year nine. Two, test results for numeracy have stagnated across all year levels since 2013. Three, commission analysis tracking the same cohort from year three to year nine shows that the improvements in year three and year five reading do not persist to year seven and year nine. Four, there are longstanding differences in national test results for reading and numeracy across students from different backgrounds or who have different experiences or needs. Results for reading and numeracy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, students in outer regional and remote areas, and students with parents with a low educational attainment are consistently below the outcomes of the general student population. Dogs note that these findings indicate that the coalition's 2018 $319 billion funding deal made between the federal government and the education providers in Australia, public and private, is failing dismally. If the woes befalling the teaching profession are added to the failure of testing procedures imposed upon the schools, something is wrong, very wrong, in the education of our Australian children. If the Productivity Commission had been permitted to examine the funding inequalities in Australian education, its members might have been presented more realistic recommendations. However, an interesting little detail is buried in the Productivity Commission report. Funding for public schools, which is two-thirds of all students, has risen 18%, Catholic 34%, and private 47% since 2013. Dogs suggest that the Productivity Commission personnel, its terms of reference, and the funding of private schools requires examination. The personnel should be changed. The terms of reference include public and private funding, and funding for private schools should be abolished. Back over to you, Jean. Well, as you can see, the dogs aren't very impressed with the Productivity Commission. It's going to be interesting to see what uh, Trevor Cobalt, who used to work for the Productivity Commission, has to say about it. But the ACTU has come out with the fisticuffs. It has a very interesting press release, which Dale is going to give us. And thanks for the coordinator at uh, 3CR for sending us this press release. 
Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got a media release from the ACTU. The Productivity Commission is the problem, not working people. Today's five-yearly report from the Productivity Commission with its 71 recommendations reveals yet again how outdated and irrelevant it is. While a review of the Commission has been floated, the only real solution is to scrap it. The Productivity Commission is stacked with former staffers to Liberal politicians and together they reflexively reach to reduce the rights of working people. This lack of balance and diversity is reflected in today's regressive recommendations. One of its notions is to encourage schools to innovate by outsourcing teaching jobs to online teachers should the school lack specialist expertise, making a mockery of addressing the current teacher shortage crisis. It also wants to slug apprentices and university students with increased fees. The Commission is recommending greater automatic recognition of international occupational licences, such as for electricians, nurses and plumbers. This is a potentially dangerous move that would undermine Australia's licensing standards and risk exposing workers and the public to harm. Among many anti-worker proposals, the Commission wants to strip workers of most of the rights they have in awards, then allow agreements to take away even more. It wants to privilege the needs of employers and consumers over workers. It's in its ongoing war on penalty rates, the Commission takes aim at award clauses, ensuring workers are paid for overtime, for unsocial or irregular hours, for weekends or public holidays, and for shift work. The Commission is also threatening entire industries by recommending Australia abandon anti-dumping measures, which would allow predatory dumping of underpriced goods on Australian markets, potentially killing off countless Australian jobs. The ACTU welcomes the Albanese government's affirmation it will not adopt every recommendation in the bloated nine-volume report. We don't believe productivity gains come from scorched earth industrial relations, Treasurer Jim Chalmers said to the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, CEDA, yesterday. Quotes attributable to ACTU Secretary Sally McManus are... The Productivity Commission is one of the least productive and inflexible institutions in our country. It has damaged the very cause of increasing productivity as a shared national ambition by equating productivity with lower wages and less rights for workers. If working people are not on side with the benefits of increased productivity, they will hardly be open to what to do to increase it. The Productivity Commission can shoulder much of the blame for the fact that since it was established, working people hear calls for increasing productivity to mean less pay for more work. This latest report proposes taking most rights of working Australians, leaving them with only seven that then could be taken away in bargaining. The Commission conveniently fails to look at some of the industrial relations characteristics of many highly productive countries which have multi-employer bargaining and a system that respects unions and encourages cooperation. The productivity debate would be better served by abolishing this myopic and narrowly ideological body and starting again with a new focus. Unions would like to engage in a positive conversation on how to lift productivity and, thankfully, this is the approach 
of the Albanese government. We also welcome the Treasurer's rejection of the Productivity Commission's outrageous and destructive recommendations to abolish workers' rights. And that was from Sally McManus and the ACTU. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, thank you very much, Dale. I think that uh, there's a general consensus amongst public school people anyway and the ACTU and working people that the Commission, the Productivity Commission, is the problem, not teachers, not students, not public school supporters. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with a new voice for you. all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Yes, well, we hope you're still listening to the dogs here on 3CR. And we have uh, a new voice for you. Oliver couldn't be doing overtime today on his job. But here is Jack to do the honours, and he's going to tell us about the 50 wealthy private schools who raked in over $600 million in donations and investment income. Over to you, Jack. Thank you very much. Thank you. <coughs> well, the wealthiest and most, most exclusive private schools in Australia are raking in millions of dollars in donation and investment income. These millions are ignored in assessing the need for government funding. This is a major flaw in how private schools are funded. <clears throat> the flaw means the schools are massively overfunded by the taxpayer. Funding of private schools must be overhauled. New figures obtained from the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commissions, that's the ACNC, show that 50 private schools received $611 million in donations and investment over income investment income over five years from 2017 to 2021. Donations totaled $461 million <clears throat> and investment income was $50 million. Just 10 schools raked in $291 million or nearly one-third of the total of donations and investments. The average income from these sources was 12.2 million per school over five years. This is in addition to their income from fees and other charges. <clears throat> the top 10 schools were Melbourne Grammar in Victoria, which uh, got 43.2 million, Shore, which is New South Wales, uh, 37.9 million, Crest Church Grammar in West Australia. 46.3 million, the Scotch College, New South Wales, 53 million, Geelong Grammar in Victoria, uh, three, sorry, 32 million, and Scotch College, Victoria, uh, 31.4 million, Cranbrook, New South Wales, 21.4 million, Brisbane Grammar in Queensland, uh, 
20 million and Mariah College, New South Wales, 19 million and Caulfield Grammar, 17 million. <clears throat> Donation, <coughs> donations on investment income from of these wealthy exclusive schools dwarfs other private income for, of public schools. The average privately sourced other income of Victoria public schools in 2020 was 290, sorry, $279 per student. By contrast, the donations and investments income of Melbourne Grammar was 5,055 per student and 5,784 per student at Geelong Grammar. The average <coughs> such income of New South Wales schools in 2020 was 54 million per 50, 150 per student. By contrast, the donations and investments income from offshore averaged uh, 4,533 per student and 3,243 per student at Scots College. These are the very wealthy, school, wealthy and exclusive schools. Their average fees in 2021 were 24,423 per student. Many have fees of around 30,000 or more per student. The fees at Sydney Grammar were 40,700 per student, and 90% or more of the students in 40 of the 50 schools were from a top two socio-educationally advantaged quartiles. The proportion to the any other 10 schools ranged from 83 to 89%. That's extraordinary figures, aren't they? Quite extraordinary. I think that the interesting ones are when we're dealing with thousands, five, six, seven thousand per private school student in private income. And uh, when you go to the public schools, you're lucky if you get a few hundred dollars per student <coughs> with the uh, poor, poor parents who've got to uh, keep the roof over their children's head as well as, well as send them to school. Uh, trying to raise more money for their poor little public schools. It's, it really is a very interesting and quite shocking situation that our education system has got us into. But back to you, uh, Jack. Thank you. Uh, these 50 private schools also received $539 million in funding by the Commonwealth and state governments. Funding was determined without regard to their donations and invest investment income. Under the current Commonwealth funding method, private school funding is determined by the capacity of families to pay fees. This is measured by the adjusted taxable income of families as reported by the Australian Tax Office. Well, as we know, wealthy people don't pay much tax because they have all sorts of lovely schemes lined up. So um, this is another area where the figures are very, very rubbery indeed. It ignores other very lucrative sources of income for private schools such as donations and investment income. In addition to fees and other charges, these schools raise additional funds through multiple tax-exempt organisations such as foundations, building funds, scholarship funds and others. For example, SURE raises funds through its SURE Foundation which has asset, assets of 42 million. 
the King's School Foundation has building scholarship and bursaries fund funds for uh, assets of 50 million. Melbourne Grammar raises funds from its Foundation Endowment uh, Fund with assets of 56 million and a building fund. Geelong Grammar raises funds from its Endowment Trust with assets of 31 million, a scholarship foundation with assets of 40 million and a building fund and a foundation. Scotch College has numerous trusts and beneficial funds that provide funding for the school. Indeed, it has so many that it had a special act in the Victorian Parliament passed in 2001 to enable it to pool the investment of those trust funds into one or more funds to minimise administrative costs of operation, uh, operating each fund and increase its income, investment income. The Scots College Foundation has assets of 100 million. These donations also reduce the tax burden of the donors. So even more money goes, goes to private, not public benefit. The failure to include donations on investment income in determining Commonwealth funding of private schools is a major flaw in the current funding model. It results in overestimation of the financial needs of need of private schools and massive overfunding by taxpayers. While, ex while including other school income is determining the financial need of private schools, it would be a step forward to a more equitable funding system. It is not, uh, it is not sufficient because there are other major flaws in the model. The major flaw is the assumption that the parents of students pay the school fees and other charges. This is demonstrably untrue. Many private school students have their fees at least partly paid for by their grandparents. Yes, well, here's one grandparent who pays her grandchild's mm -hmm. fees, but it's at a public school. Yeah. The funding model uh, also ignores other incomes, other income provided by grandparents, such as money for house renovations, household items such as uh, white goods, furniture and uh, IT equipment, cars, holiday and medical expenses that free up family income to be spent on school fees. Over 50% of parents have the adult student, students with a variety of expenses, including school fees. The Bank of Mum and Dad, it's a big bank. The Bank of Mum and Dad is reported to be the ninth largest home lender in Australia. As a result of this direct and indirect financial support for families, which is not recorded in adjusted taxable income, the capacity of private school parents to pay school fees is vastly underestimated uh, and private schools are consequently massively overfunded by taxpayers. Even, <clears throat> even apart from these flaws, the current funding model is overfunding many wealthy schools according to its own criteria. Private schools are supposed to be funded at 80% of their schooling resource standard by the Commonwealth, by the Commonwealth Government and the remaining 20% by state governments. However, many of these 
include exclusive schools are already hugely overfunded by the Commonwealth. For example, in New South Wales, Loreto Caribilli was funded at uh, 143% of its SRS in 2022 by the Commonwealth instead of 80%. And St. Alois College was funded at 140%. Melbourne Grammar was funded at 107%. And Brisbane Grammar was funded at 113%. And St. Mary's Anglican Girls School in Perth was funded at 140%. Well, this is all very, very interesting, isn't it? And if our listeners want to find out more about this, they'll find all of these figures uh, and more on the Save Our Schools website. Uh, it's a very, it's a mine of information. Uh, just to continue, the overfunding of Loretta Carabelli is estimated by Save Our Schools at 2.3 million in 2022 and 2.4 million for St. Aloysius College. Melbourne Grammar was overfunded by 1.7 million, while Brisbane Grammar and St. Mary's Anglican schools were overfunded by 3 million. The total overfunding of 38 of the 50 schools was 57.6 million. Seven schools were funded at slightly less than 80% in 2022, but will be funded at 80% in 2023. Figures for the other five schools could not be obtained. Well, thank you very much, Jack. Um, and uh, once again, uh, Save Our Schools is a mine of information. And a lot of these statistics are also on our website under the uh, statistics uh, section uh, at www.adogs.info. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to some more information. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 03 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Yes, well, the obscenity, which is the, um, the, the enormous amounts of money, millions and millions, being overfunded with wealthy private schools, particularly in New South Wales, uh, is pretty shocking. But what is even more shocking is the shortage of resources for public education, particularly in New South Wales. And we're thinking of this this week, of course, because there is an election on Saturday up there. And uh, hopefully the coalition government will be given a very firm message on what they have done for public education or not done. But uh, Sorrell has a very interesting uh, press release for us on this. Over to you, Sorrell. Thanks, Jean. So this article is from the New South Wales Teachers Federation and it is entitled New South Wales Coalition Delivers a Shortage of Classrooms and a Shortage of Teachers. The chronic shortage of classrooms in New South Wales public schools has been revealed in new figures 
which show over 5,000 demountable classrooms on school grounds. Obtained under FOI, the Department of Education data reveals a total of 5,093 demountable teaching spaces in public schools last year, the equivalent of 2.3 per school across New South Wales. The school-by-school information shows the highest concentrations of demountables are in schools in city electorates, including the Epping seat of the Premier, which has the second highest number of 178. The school with the highest number, 81, is also in the Premier's electorate. At the same time, newly published information shows the Peritet government is giving millions in funding to private schools for new luxury buildings and facilities, including permanent classrooms to replace demountable buildings. The New South Wales Teachers Federation President, Angelo Gavrilatos, said, We have a shortage of teachers and a shortage of classrooms, and the Peritet government denies both problems even exist. The number of demountable classrooms is 30% higher than when the coalition won in 2011, and they are increasingly being used as permanent solutions to the shortage of permanent classrooms, which is totally unacceptable. The priorities of this government are all wrong. Despite warnings about a lack of classrooms, they cut over $1 billion from the public school capital works budget in 2021 to 2022 and our children are the ones who are paying the price. While public school students are stuck in demountables, the Peritet government is giving millions to private schools to replace them with permanent classrooms and build amphitheatres and digital photography studios. The new government figures are only for classrooms and the total number of demountable buildings on public school grounds would be significantly higher. This government is failing teachers and failing students in public schools. The electorates with the highest number of demountable teaching spaces are Riverstone with 235, Epping with 178, Castle Hill with 136, and Kellyville with 134. Back over to you, Jean. Well, of course, one of the main reasons that we are pro-public education is that it a public school is open to all children. There is no discrimination at the gates. And this is something to remember because this week throughout the world is Harmony Week. And we are made aware every, every night on our news of the shocking discrimination against children around the world, against girls in Afghanistan in particular, but also against all kinds of children here in Australia. And, uh, yes, it's, it's really a very big issue at the moment. So Maddie has a very interesting media release, once again, from the New South Wales Teachers Federation. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you, Jean. So the 21st of March was the start of what the Australian government calls Harmony Week, and this designated week is scheduled for the purpose of celebrating cultural diversity with a focus on inclusiveness, respect, and a sense of belonging for everyone in our communities. But by putting a positive spin on the true intent of March 21, could we actually be covering up the true reality of racism in Australia and hampering genuine efforts to achieve its elimination? 
In the United Nations calendar, March 21 is the United Nations International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and takes its date from the Sharpeville Massacre that took place during a civil rights event in apartheid South Africa in 1960. Since 1966, the world has observed this date as being the day that freedom from racial discrimination should be recognised as being a human right. Globally, it's marked as a day of mourning, and according to the UN website, the date opens a week of solidarity with the people struggling against racism and racial discrimination. Andrew Jabalkowitz, emeritus professor of sociology at University of Technology, Sydney, believes the rebranding of End of End Racism Day into Harmony Day has been detrimental, as Australia has avoided developing institutional research into racism and discrimination and failed to hold societal conversations to combat these. He also says that we've lost a generation of capacity to engage with racism and do something about it in a systematic and serious way. Federation has long held strong policies around anti-racism and multicultural education. That's because education is the key to eradicating racism and embedding the principles of diversity and inclusivity into our communities. Schools should celebrate and share cultural heritage, practices, beliefs, identities, and languages. By leading our communities in the appreciation of difference and respect for each other, we can promote peace. Inclusiveness and building strength in belonging. If by celebrating Harmony Week, people are encouraged to use their voice to speak out against racism and to mobilise against all manifestations of discrimination and injustice, then you are advocating for the principles of UN's International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. The 2023 United Nations theme for the 21st of March focuses on the urgency of combating racism and racial discrimination 75 years after the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It was 75 years ago that a set of common values was agreed upon by the international community and it was acknowledged that rights are inherent to every single human being and not granted by the state. These rights are enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a blueprint for international human rights norms. Therefore, if, as educators, we stand up, educate for anti-racism, equity and inclusion within our schools and the wider community, and at the same time wear orange to symbolise that everyone belongs, then we are both celebrating and embedding very important messaging that Australia is a vibrant, multicultural land. It's diversity ranging from the oldest culture of our First Nations people to the cultures of our newest arrivals from many different countries all over the world. As individuals, we should be proud of our own identity and as a community, we should celebrate this and work together to promote the message of harmony. On the 21st of March, the United Nations General Assembly reiterates that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity, and rights and have the potential to contribute constructively to the development and well-being of their societies. Only education about the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and action against all forms of discrimination will truly achieve the Harmony Week message that everyone belongs. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, and we, we really do believe that that is very, very important 
And in fact, that's what public education has always been about, including all children, all teachers, all principals, all cleaners, all parents. It is an inclusive system, not an exclusive one like the private school system. Now we'll have a break and then we'll go international. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. RECR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well... We hope you're still with with us because we're off to Iraq 20 years after the invasion by, remember, remember it, President Bush? Remember, we were supposed to be after those weapons of mass destruction. Never happened, excepting from, from the uh, invaders. And uh, the weapons never materialised. But um, what has happened to Iraqi girls? Over to you, Dale. Now here's an article from The Guardian. Two decades after the Iraq invasion, what happened to the promise of education for girls? 20 years ago, Iraqi women and girls were promised a new future of liberation and education by former US president. The reality is different. Coming home late in the evening, a young girl in the southern Iraqi city of Basra, Zainab, then 15, feared each day could be the last time, last day she could go to school. Living in a conservative district in Basra province, where females out alone in the evening are frowned upon, Zainab's family were not happy about it. They were also concerned about her safety. Her school, like many in Iraq, had been forced to divide and rotate pupils in, into morning, afternoon and evening shifts as there were not enough buildings available to accommodate all students at once. The late evenings led to arguments with her family, but her parents' faith in education, despite their illiteracy, meant Zainab was able to complete her education, though not in Iraq, as her family later left for Jordan, escaping conflict and instability. I was a smart and hardworking student, but in both Iraq and Jordan, I was always fearful I would have to drop out, says Zainab. 
other girls have not been so fortunate. UNICEF estimates that about 3.2 million school-age Iraqi children are out of school. It's a far cry from the vision outlined by President George W. Bush in March 2004, a year after the US-led invasion of Iraq. At the time, a new future of liberation and education for women and girls had been part of the moral justification for the invasion. For women and girls, liberation has a special significance. Some of these girls are attending school for the first time. It's hard for people in America to imagine. A lot of young girls now get to go to school, Bush had said in 2004 with reference to Afghanistan and Iraq. The education system had already been affected by a decade of sanctions and the three wards waged during the Ba'athist era. In 2004, a study published by the Iraqi Education Ministry and UNICEF found the education system lacked the basics necessary to provide children with adequate education, especially girls whose enrolment was lower than boys across all grades. It has not improved over the past two decades. Only 6% of the state budget has been allocated to education despite its importance for economic growth. For girls, education opens up new possibilities through career development or entrepreneurship, as well as the potential for them to, to create more economic opportunities for others. Girls are also at an increased risk of dropping out as they progress through education, with one in 14 girls in Iraq aged between 15 and 19 giving birth, according to estimates by the charity Save the Children. As of 2017, Iraq had the lowest female literacy rate, 79.9% in the region, below the global average of 83.3%. This is despite Article 34 of the Iraqi Constitution, which stipulates that primary education should be free and obligatory for all children. However, international aid and investment is not the only issue. According to former students from before and after the invasion who spoke to The Guardian and Juma, an independent Iraqi media platform, the fall of Saddam Hussein in 2003 didn't mean that existing laws changed overnight. This includes a penal code from 1969 that enables parents and teachers to discipline children. The Education Ministry has stipulated that the bail should not be compulsory in schools. However, in 2005, Iraqi constitution states that Islam is the official state religion and should be the foundation source of legislation. Occasionally, female students and some teachers share their experiences online using hashtags that highlight their oppression, such as hashtag educational terrorism and hashtag no to the compulsory veil. And that was an article by Balsam Mustafa in The Guardian. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, now we've got some good news. And part of this good news is that it doesn't matter how much money they pour into private schools, the public system is the main system and the private system is parasitic on it. And all the good ideas and all the special things have always come from the public system. And The Guardian, the UK Guardian, has picked up a very special principal and a very special school in Australia. And Dale is going to tell us about it. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. This article is titled Albert Park Secondary College, No Revolution Necessary. Mainstream public schools can and must put creativity at their heart. 
and it's by Stephen Cook. Children will leave school without any enthusiasm for life if we only focus on the basics, says one principal who overhauled his public school. Here's the question. What is education for? Is it for equipping young people narrowly for a career or is it for equipping them for life? I believe that if education has an enemy, it's narrowness, which leads inexorably to another enemy, boredom. A good my school rating doesn't mean it's good for your kid. What is killing our schools is the belief that we should concentrate on the basics and pretty much the basics only. If this thinking continues, our schools are in danger of being turned into factories to churn out rudimentary skills like literacy and numeracy without giving enough emphasis to more creator, higher-end knowledge and personal capabilities. Of course, the basics are important. They are the concrete foundation upon which all else is to be built. But without something more, they can also be soul-destroying for teachers as well as students. This need to concentrate on the basics to the exclusion of more interesting learning is a common lament of principals. Some get so disillusioned that they leave the system and start their own highly creative, rule-bending, sometimes almost completely off-the-grid independent schools. There are plenty of examples of this in Australia and around the world, and there are many aspects of them to admire. It takes a certain type of charismatic educator to successfully pull off the creation of such schools. It's expensive to do, and unfortunately, because these schools need to charge considerable tuition fees, not everyone can go to them. Parents turn to buy now, pay later schemes to meet Australia's soaring school costs. But it is possible to embrace high degrees of creativity while remaining within the mainstream educational system, including within the public system. It doesn't involve revolutionary changes, but can be done through a very practical alteration to the, the way a school operates. It's time for all schools, state and non-government, to become more ambitious and provide all young people with an education that is broader, deeper and better. In other words, all schools need to put creativity at the heart of what they do. Making schools more creative sounds like a philosophical project, but it's actually a very practical one which any school can implement in a myriad of ways. This involves educators taking creativity seriously, but it also involves education departments taking greater care to listen to principals and teachers about what a more imaginative, imaginative approach to education might achieve. It is possible to embrace a high degree of creativity while remaining within the mainstream education system. Sadly, thinking about what our schools teach tends to be heavily influenced by excessive reliance upon data. And in such an intellectual and public policy environment, the things that can, can be measured most easily get the most attention, hence the overemphasis on the basics. Our schools could benefit greatly from the increased involve, involvement of hands-on educators in the design of education policy. I know the power of creativity from my own school days and life. Think back to when you were a teenager. A young person has that magic moment in their life when it's possible to see over the horizon, beyond the next village, and want to go there. It's got something to do with the intellect and emotions supercharging each other. The moment doesn't last long, but it can be transformative. I know this is a bit of a literary creep cliche, but in my case and that of many of my friends, that cliche rings true almost literally. 
I grew up in a working class coal mining community of the La Trobe Valley. This was a tough place. Many of my contemporaries went on to work in mining and power generation, which has given them good lives, and many have used the skills picked up on the job to achieve great success in life. But many others chose different paths. As with me, their attention was grabbed early by inspiring teachers who taught them to appreciate literature and history and to inspire them to go out and be part of the wider world. From that time onwards, I've seen education as about much more than passing down technical skills to get a job. To me, a school is a place that can awaken your mind and change your life. The beauty and majesty of education is a very real thing, and I've always sought to pass it down to others. Our schools fail to engage children in the subjects they teach. Our answer is to give them more tutoring in the basics. Now, as industrial towns like the one I grew up in have have shed most of those blue-collar jobs, this task of education to inspire people to become creative and outward-looking is even more urgent and important. It just needs to be approached in different ways. For several years now, I've been inspired by the great British educator, Sir Ken Robinson, who sadly died in 2020. Robinson believed it was a crime that so many students trudge wearily through their school years, disengaged, bored, and even hostile. Not because they themselves are dull, but because the school system itself is too dull to try to discover what makes them tick. So much creative energy, he argued, is being wasted. And I agree. Our schools are part of a societal machine that inducts children full of potential and wonder, loads them onto a conveyor belt and stamps them with basic skills before depositing too many of them into the job market with narrow interests and low aspirations. To deal with the shortcomings of its work, this machine provides remedial, disciplinary and welfare processes, many of which wouldn't be necessary if school could engage them better. Our schools fail to engage children in the subjects they teach, and our answer is to give them more tutoring in the basics, often the very thing that turns them off. They leave without enthusiasm for the world, and if they fail in it, we give them unemployment benefits as a consolatory measure. In extreme cases, when all proves too much, we make them queue up for inadequate mental health support. We can do so much more if we really try. Let's face it, trying to change the entire education system is likely a futile exercise. We may as well try to boil the ocean dry. There are things that can be done in schools. Yes, even within the constraints of the system that can make a huge difference. I believe the answer lies in integrating creativity into the structure and daily activities of school. Thinking about how to bring out the creativity that resides in every student is the simplest and most powerful way to improve schools. It'll make principals bolder and broader in their thinking. Its implications will reverberate through their schools, influencing everything they do. Adopting creativity as a school motto will have three main benefits. It will overcome the problem of having too many disengaged students. It will allow schools to hang on to more staff who also find the basics disenchanting and boring. And it will give students the skills and capacities they need for a more successful and fulfilled life. We don't have to choose between work and life as the objects of schooling. Creativity will allow you to deliver both because the new economy is making creativity central to personal and national success. Unless we concentrate more on bringing out the creativity of students, we are simply not doing our job. And that was by Stephen Cook, who's been a public school teacher and principal for four decades. 
He led the successful redevelopment of two highly regarded Victorian secondary schools, including Albert Park College, which had closed down in 2006 due to underperformance. It reopened under Cook's leadership and in 2021 was named Australian School of the Year. In 2017, Cook was awarded the Victorian Education Excellence Award for Outstanding Secondary Principals. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, the Guardian thought Mr Cook had a lot lot of good things going in his school, and, of course, it's Albert Park College, and um, the wealthy send their children there, you'll find, but that is going to tell us about our great state school for the week. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is, of course, Albert Park College. Congratulations, Albert Park College. Albert Park College is one of Melbourne's newest and most exciting secondary schools. The inner Melbourne Bayside community demands high standards of academic achievement, skill attainment, artistic creativity, sporting prowess, and personal development for its children. Their curriculum and programs are designed to meet those demands and are delivered by highly motivated and qualified teachers in modern and architecturally distinctive buildings that utilise the most up-to-date learning technologies. I'm going to throw some facts and figures at you now from the Akara My School website. There are 1,559 students enrolled at Albert Park College. The Ixia value is above average, quite a bit above average, at 1,124. Um, there is 53% of the students that have um, parents in the upper quartile of income earning, 28% in the second highest quartile, 14% in the third quartile, and in the lowest quartile, there is 6% of the students. So it's a school that has attracted those on high incomes, but uh, 34% of the students speak a language other than English, and there are zero Indigenous students. Now to finances. Recurring grants. The Australian government provides $4.36 million annually. Victorian government provides $16.68 million. Fees and parental contributions add up to $2,877,000 and other private contributions are $168,000. But it only costs $15,534 to send a school, send a student to this school. In capital grants over the last three years, there has been $2.6 million. So Albert Park College, you are our great state school of the week and we thank the teachers, the students and the community that make this school possible. Well, thank you very much, Mevi. Isn't that a lovely story? And uh, if you want to find out more about the dogs and our fight for public education, we're there for you to find out about at www.adogs.info or on the 3CR website. But from our wonderful producer, Dale, and Maddie and Jack and Sorrel. It's bye for now.
dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I did, says Joe, but I did. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find your listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.